Beautiful singing. You sound better when you're standing together, you see. Far more volume. You can hear each other better. And it's a fact that when we can hear each other better, we sing better. When we hear each other better, we serve better. So togetherness is absolutely essential. Thank you, Sandy. That was lovely. When was the first time you ever became aware of this crazy, weird phenomenon called deja vu? You've all experienced it, I gather, in one way or another, that weird, uncanny, slightly mysterious feeling that this has happened before. I remember as a child, it it first happened to me, and I thought... It was very, very strange. I was quite relieved to find out that other people also experience a strange phenomenon. Interesting studies have been done on the whole reality of deja vu, but I think the Apostle Peter had a bit of a deja vu experience as we come to Acts 12. So let's read Acts 12. I'll read from verses 1 to 19 as we continue the, the record, the narrative, the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, birthing, building, and growing his church according to his declaration, according to his promise, and according to his eternal purpose for his glory, in order that we might accomplish all his, all that he's called us and created us to be. So as Dr. Luke, the historian, carries on with the record in verse 1 of chapter 12. We hear that it was about that time, as he continues the story, you read the end of 11, the prophecy about the famine and the bringing of gifts by the believers to support the church uh, in Jerusalem. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Remember, persecution broke out uh, at the stoning of Stephen. That's recorded in Acts 8. And it continues to this day, even as we are praying for our brothers and sisters in Bangladesh this morning. He arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the Passover feast. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Why was the guard so thorough and so heavy? Mm. That's this deja vu thing. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Why would he do that? Because he didn't want to offend the Jews. He's trying to always win favor with the Jews. So Peter was kept in prison, but dun, 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 back at base. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping 
between two soldiers, rather you than me, bud. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened automatically. That's the literal translation. We actually get our English word automatic from the Greek word in this verse. It opened automatically by itself, and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly, a lot of things happening suddenly, you noticed, suddenly the angel left him as as sudden as the angel had appeared, so he left. His, His mission was complete. Then Peter came to himself. You know that feeling when you're just waking up and you weren't expecting to wake up? Takes a while. Even when I prepare myself from the night before, you know, I talk, no, don't be afraid. Don't get a shock. The alarm's going to go off in the morning. It's okay. Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When he had realized this, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. What were they praying for? For his release. (laughs) This is great. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And a servant girl named Rhoda, or Rosie, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it. And exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Stop interrupting us. We're praying for Peter's release anyway. Very important prayer meeting. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Fancy that. Imagine God answering prayer. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Thanks for praying. Bye. 
Well, they're going to come looking for him pretty soon. In the morning, don't you love this? There was no small commotion. In other words, there was a heck of a hullabaloo among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. They woke up from the best sleep night's sleep in their life, and, the pris- and everything's still locked, and the prisoner's gone. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed because, according to him, they had failed in their duty. And according to the law, failure of duty in guarding a prisoner meant that you were to suffer the punishment that the prisoner was facing. This is one of those amazing passages of Scripture that is really, when you get past the, uh, the surface of it, you realize this is quite comical. And this is quite an indictment on the church and on us and, and our lack of faith in prayer. But God, again, is at work for His glory, for our good, and for the spreading of the gospel. Somebody's still reading the scripture. That's that's, that's encouraging. So we're going to be looking at some points here that are drawing out of the text, and it's going to be deja vu for you because these are not new, but neither is the table to which we will come just now. But these things are instituted for us so that we remember, so that we don't forget, so that we grow in our faith and in our understanding of God in his word. So some big, big ideas that come out of this text. And I trust they will be encouraging to you that you'll be able to apply them and be, be energized and strengthened by them and share with them with people around you who need to be encouraged. What a blessing it is for us to encourage one another and to remind one another of God's word, of his promises and of his, good, of his goodness. So the first point I want to Highlight is that God is our rescue. It is God who is our rescue. God is our salvation. Remember, the name of Jesus literally means our salvation, the Savior, the Deliverer, Yeshua, which is a contraction of a a couple names in the Hebrew, which means God is our salvation salvation. So Peter is in prison. James has been put to death. The church is going through a challenging, challenging time. In the midst of all the good and all the growth and all the excitement, they are facing persecution because they belong to Jesus. But all we have to remember, isn't it great that as God's people, you know, we, we can really apply the KISS principle, you know, the keep it simple saints. That's what the last S stands for. Keep it simple saints. Let's just focus on a few glorious, basic, eternal, unchanging truths. God is our rescue. I like what J.I. Packer says here. There's enough power in the mere command of God to remove all 
kinds of obstacles, even when every way seems completely blocked. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. It can be quite exciting. When we here, here's here's a crazy here's a crazy idea for the week. Let's just take God at his word. How about that? Do not fear. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. Trust in me. Imagine just doing that for seven days. Actually doing that. That means that when we hit a crisis, when we feel trapped, imprisoned, overwhelmed, what should be our response? Panic! Remember the disciples in the boat when the storm picks up? What is their first response? This is a great opportunity to see God at work. This is awesome. What a storm, boys. I mean, we're fishermen. We've been on the sea for years. We served as apprentices under our fathers. We've heaved these nets year in and year out, and we've never seen a storm like this. This is fantastic. Let's see what Jesus is going to do. What are they doing instead? Bailing water and panicking. Lord, wake up. Don't you care that we drown? Remember that he rebukes them before he rebukes the storm. Oh, ye of little faith. Well, Peter had obviously learned a couple things. Because he's soundly asleep. Chained between two hostile guards with two more at the door of the cell. But he is sleeping like a rock. I wouldn't say sleeping like a baby. Because whoever came up with that saying, babies don't sleep that well. He was sleeping like a log. He must have remembered something. Remember Acts chapter 5? He was also in prison in Acts chapter 5. And he was released. It doesn't mean that every time we get into a predicament or a crisis that we're going to be released, that we're going to get out, you know, Nothing's going to happen to us. But it does mean that it hasn't taken God by surprise. It's part of his plan, and he's going to reveal himself. So we might as well just start to enjoy the ride. Do not be afraid. It's one of the most common commands in the New Testament. And every time an angel appears, they always tell the people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This angel maybe was, um, maybe he didn't do so well in the encouragement department in Angel Academy, but he kicked Peter in the side. But Peter was sleeping so well that that's what it took to wake him up. I actually think we can start calling Peter the Houdini apostle because this is a second escape. You guys remember Houdini? 10 o'clock service, when not know who Houdini is, but you go. I'll have to use David Blaine or something like that, but you guys know Houdini. One angel. Just one angel. That's all he needed. 
But let's not miss what's going on. The church is praying. As it turns out, it wasn't very believing prayer. But it was still prayer. And we must acknowledge that. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan preacher, said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Isn't that lovely? And then this crazy, crazy reality. God calls us and he calls angels to be a part of what he's doing. There are these tantalizing references to angels in the New Testament that are absolutely fascinating and very intriguing. But there can be no doubt that God uses angels and he uses people. He calls us to be a part of the miracle. He is our rescue, but he calls us to be a part of it. How do we know that? Well, the angel appears, but the angel doesn't help Peter get dressed. Quick, get up, he said. Verse 8, put on your clothes and your sandals. You might need a miracle to get out of prison, but you don't need a miracle to put on your shoes. So do what you can do. So many times we're waiting for God to do our part of the miracle. Somebody said, I can't remember now, but whenever we pray something for someone, we need to be prepared to be a part of the answer to that prayer. And if we're not prepared to be a part of the answer to that prayer, maybe we shouldn't pray it. Prayer is not a way to abandon our responsibility and get God to do what we need to do. We need every day to get up and put on our shoes to get ready for the day, to fulfill our responsibilities. Wake up, put on your sandals, put on your garment, follow me. So I'm assuming that most of us, all of us, we do a few common things every morning. I won't go into too much detail, but we do them. And one of them is we probably put on some shoes. Yes? Yes. So, in the morning, when we put on our shoes, let's remember that God is inviting us to join him on his mission. That's such a practical prompt. I'm going to put on my shoes. It's getting a little more difficult to do that. You know, flexibility is not what it used to be. But when we put on our shoes, let's remember that God is inviting us to join him on his mission. What is your agenda today, Lord? What is your agenda for me? And what do I need to do to join you? You are the God of salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. And we are called and we are equipped and we are enabled to share that reality with people. What are the divine appointments you have for us today, Lord? Who do I need to speak to? I'm going to speak to a lot of people about a lot of things, but there's some conversations I must not miss because God has gone before and prepared the way. And he wants me and he wants you to join him on his rescue mission for his glory. 
It's so fascinating to me as we compare some of these different events in the, what we've read in Acts so far that Philip gets relocated. Remember that? When he speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch. After that, he gets beamed up and relocated on the coast. We know no details about that. We're just told it happened. But with Peter's release, we have a blow-by-blow account. Let's not expect God to do the same thing the same way every time. He's not boring like us. So let's not prescribe to him how he must work in our lives. We must be listening to him. And we need to be ready. We need to put on our shoes because God is our rescue and he's going to use us to rescue others. That's what he does. That's what he does. And the day cannot be same old, same old if we realize God is our rescue and he's enabling, he's equipping, he's calling you and me to be a part of his rescue team in the lives of other people every single day. Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a prayer. Maybe it's a comment. Maybe it's a a smile. Who knows? But we need to be ready because God is in the business of glorifying himself and rescuing people. And as we look at this event and this situation that has a very comical side to it, let's, let's not miss the application that the church was praying, but were they really ready? Well, not really. They were surprised. They were taken aback. Rhoda didn't even open the door. She was so overwhelmed. I remember when we came back from the, from the States... 1977. But I remember it like it was yesterday. We, arrived, we didn't tell my, we didn't tell my, my own mom, my mom's mom. Um, she was the first one we went to see. We didn't tell her we were coming back. Thought it would be a surprise. So we arrive at her house at her front door at her flat there in, in the Berea, uh, in Derbs, on a normal afternoon. And we knock on her door, and she opens the door, and here's six of her family she hasn't seen for years, because we were in America. You know what she did? She closed the door right in our face. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That, that was the welcome. Why? She couldn't believe it. This can't be happening. This is completely unreal. My family cannot be outside the door. And then, it didn't take long, she opened it again and swamped us with love and hugs. And What a beautiful reunion that was. I'll never forget it. But are we ready? Are we ready for what God is going to do? We know his nature. He saved us. He wants to save other people. He wants us to be a part of that process. Are we ready? Here's the table. We're going to take the bread and drink the cup, and we're going to say, I will proclaim your death until you come. We're we're recommitting ourselves to serve God as we do this. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's engage. 
So God is our rescue, but also, and this is very important, God is the ruler. There's a ruler in the story. His name is Herod. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. He's part of a a power-thirsty dynasty. And in order to... to, He wasn't popular. The Herods were not popular with the Jews. But this Herod wanted to... Herod Antipas was his name. He wanted to be popular with the Jews. So he was doing things to seek their approval, to be accepted by them. And when he noticed that uh, James was put to death, the Jews loved it. Yay! Well, give us some more of that. So he went after another prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that was Peter. And because he wanted to win the favor of the Jews, he thought, well, we'll just keep him in prison till after Passover, because that would be really a bad political move, bad career move to do anything about this over Passover. The Jews would get really upset. It would kind of undermine the whole of my intention. So he keeps him in prison. But he's not the ruler, is he? God is the ruler. You know, I've heard just in the last couple of days again, people using the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. I believe Malcolm Gladwell's even written a book. I, I wish people would read the actual story. Because the story of David and Goliath The story of David and Goliath is not about a small guy beating up a big guy. No. The message is that God is bigger than any giant. The giant in the story of David and Goliath is not Goliath. The giant is God. Hello? The giant is God. How big are your giants? Some of them are pretty big. Are any of them bigger than God? God is the ruler. Herod's not the ruler. He's not, he's not the star in this, in this story. God is. As a matter of fact, if you read on in the story, Herod comes to a very sticky gruesome end. We'll get there soon. But even as we remember the story, read the story, let's remember the things are not as they seem. Herod is not the ruler. He's not pulling the strings. Putin is not the ruler. He's not pulling the strings. God is the ruler. He's the giant. He's the hero. He's the rescuer. I was reminded the other day, of what God says in Isaiah as he prepares to release his people from captivity. He says, Cyrus, my servant. Who's Cyrus? He's the king of Persia. He's the one who's in prison. You know, they've moved from Assyria, captured the, destroyed the northern kingdom, Babylon, took the southern kingdom into exile. Babylon got clapped. By who? By the Persians. So Daniel and his buddies, when we meet Daniel, when we meet Esther, they're down in Persia. And who releases them? When God says it's time, the exile is over, then my people go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus, my servant. Was Cyrus a believer? Was Nebuchadnezzar a believer? No. Do you know that an unbeliever wrote two chapters of the Bible? If you read Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar wrote. 
And what did he actually say in those two chapters? I'm not the ruler. I'm not the boss. Yahweh is. How do I know that? I ended up grazing like a cow for seven years. And God showed me, you're not in charge, buddy. I am. What does Romans 13 say? God institutes government. And God allows governments to rule. And we might not like them, and we don't have to vote for them, but we have to suck it up. But their job is that they are answerable to God. They're not the ruler. Herod had an evil strategy. He wanted to shatter the church. People have been trying to do that ever since. Nobody's ever succeeded. But what is the story that comes through over and over? Mankind's attempts to resist and reject God become strong evidence to other pretenders not to trifle with the king of kings, not to mess with the God of the universe. And yet they still trifle. The sealed tomb, the guarded tomb, becomes great evidence for the resurrection. And whenever people have tried to destroy the church, even as they're trying to destroy our brothers and sisters in Bangladesh, God is saying, I will use their sacrifice. I will use their their lives to spread my gospel and to undermine the work of the evil one because I am the ruler. I am victorious. Lawrence Richard says, when we pray, let's throw open the doors of our lives and eagerly look for God's answer. What is God telling us? He is the ruler. He's in charge. He's in control. Another little irony here, it was easier for Peter, probably the only time in history, the history of the church, it was easier to get out of prison than it was to get into a prayer meeting. You had to bang and beg. I wish it was hard to get into prayer meetings because they were so full and we were so committed to prayer. And lastly, I want to highlight this as well. God is our reason to live. If we realize that, if we embrace the fact that God is our reason to live, then when crises hit, when trials hit, when we are in our own prison cell of some uh, trial or catastrophe or loss, do we give up hope? We feel like it? Of course we do. Do we have the option of giving up? Of course we do. Do we need to? No, we don't. And, and you know, Peter gets a bad rap. He often, you know, he's the... He's always opening his mouth to change his feet. But he's opening his mouth, you know. Don't give him such a hard time for drowning or or thinking he was going to drown on the sea. He's the only guy who got out of the boat. Let's give him credit for that. Because he was so overwhelmed, Jesus said, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, 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 that can't happen. And even at that point, Jesus had to say, hey, get behind me, Satan. He's on the mountain of transfiguration. Nobody else is speaking, but Peter speaks up. Let's make some tents. 
This is a Sukkot. This is a, this is a tabernacle experience. He's seen at the tabernacle in the wilderness. God's presence, the Shekinah. He's not wrong. He's just saying what everybody else is thinking. The Lord Jesus Christ was Peter's reason to live. And so when he writes his letters, 1 and 2 Peter, and also the Gospel of Mark, is probably um, recorded by Mark with Peter in his ear. And what do we see in him through his life? Do you know that Peter, it's, history tells us that he was crucified upside down? Why was he crucified upside down? Because he said, I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior died. Don't crucify me that way. Crucify me all you want, but don't crucify me that way. I'm not worthy to die like Jesus died. And Peter demonstrates that God is our reason to live. There's an elephant in the room here. Let's not forget. Innocent people. Well, that's debatable. But were the soldiers guilty of failing in their duty? No. Did they die anyway? Yes, they did. And we can get tangled up on this, we can get hooked up on this, which is not the point of the passage of Scripture, but let's not ignore it either. And without taking it too far, I just want to suggest something here. Because, and I'm very glad that I don't know when I'm going to die. Woody Allen, my favorite quote on death, he says, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I think that's fantastic. But imagine dying and being on the wrong side of history. Not human history. I think. I think in just by the way. I think in a in a in a relatively short period of time, we are going to be so embarrassed about this period of history with all this transgenderism and all this stuff. I think we are. I'm. I hope I don't have to explain this to my great grandkids. Never mind my grandkids. But imagine dying and being on the wrong side of history. What do I mean by that? Being on the side of darkness because Jesus says there's no gray, there's no twilight zone, there's light and darkness. You're for me or against me. The death of these soldiers, the physical death, is not the great tragedy. The great tragedy is what happened after that for those who didn't know Jesus. Maybe, hopefully, please, Lord, 
I mean, Paul got a lot of prisoners. Uh, God saved. Maybe Peter did the same. But imagine dying on the wrong side of history. And as we come to the as we come to the focal point of history, this this is the this is the epicenter of human history, the, the Lord's table. There is no greater event. There is no more defining event in the history of history, in the history of mankind, than this table. And it's the Lord's table. It's not our table. It's not the table of a denomination or a movement or an ideology. It's the Lord's table. And each one of us comes to this table and we must, Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 11, we must, we must examine ourselves. Which side are we on? This table seems benign. You know, it seems, it's, it's very understated, but it's, it's, it's a very challenging time for us as we come to the table. Because this table is all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. So let's come to the table prayerfully. And I'm going to invite you to just spend a few moments in prayer with me as we come to the table. Let's pray together.